Alright, open up your Bibles. Let's get into it. Um, you guys can come closer if you want to. I, um, I'm probably the least contagious of all of the sniffles that I've heard today because I don't think I have any. I think I actually got rid of all of my sickness in Rome. <laughs> so, pray for the people in Rome, I suppose. They're probably dealing with it now. I would like you to read the first 12 verses with me and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. The book of Colossians, in prayer, the Lord has um, just asking Him where He would like us to go in this period of time before we go to consistent Sundays, which I believe will start at the beginning of the year. We'll at least go to consistent Sundays. Um, we're getting much closer to that even now. And uh, I'm very, very thankful for all of you. And what the Lord is doing. Read along with me if you would please, starting in verse 1, book of Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you and is also in the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is among you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. So you also learn from Epaphras, our fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who has declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of the light. You pray with me, please. Father, thank you for this rich morning. We recognize your presence here. We recognize, Lord, that you are wanting to do a work in each of us. There is much you want to accomplish. There is much you want to see done. But Lord, we recognize we're not a task on your task bar to tick off by the end of the day. Truth be told, Lord, we are your whole agenda. We are, and the relationship you have with us, be your primary objective throughout the course of this day. Holy Spirit, we recognize that there is no greater ministry for you, no greater focus for you than to be the catalyst of intimacy between us and the Father. And so we invite you to do your work today to make us more intimate with the Father. Jesus, we thank you for your fantastic prize of the gift of the cross. And we also thank you, Lord, for the way that you are preparing us, Lord, through your Spirit to be the right bride for you. And we pray, Lord, 
so that we would be able to see you high and lifted up and honored even as the Father is honored, you tell us, in John chapter 5. Lord, may we honor you today. Exalt your name. May all of our problems and concerns and issues of life become so small. In essence, simply, may they become in their proper proportion to you. And in doing so, may we turn our hearts to you now. I pray, Lord, for that fresh filling to overflow of your Holy Spirit. That you would immerse me, that I would disappear. And that you would fill me to overflowing, that I'd be empowered to do what I wouldn't even desire to do in my flesh. But what your Spirit would compel me to do and empower me to do beyond my humanity. To speak to every one of us personally today. That we would so clearly hear your voice. That we would declare you as more real, more personal, more profound. And our lives more surrendered in this process. So have your way now. I pray you would bridge language gaps, Lord, between how hard it might be to hear a second language or a third language, Lord. And, and, and so speak to us, regardless of where we're at. Speak fluent us. In between my mouth and their ears and my ears, address perfectly, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, of course, as I would say this morning, is any please don't just believe me. Please don't just assume it's true because I say so. Would the Bible always be your authority? We approach a book and that gives us a few minutes of overview. In the area of the Lycus Valley, this is a, a roughly 112 miles due east from Ephesus. It is the area that is called the province of Asia Minor. It is called the region of Phrygia. Um, although I would say that if there was any area more frigid than this area, we would have to go north. Uh, it is the area that we see here. It is a valley that is carved out by a river. Uh, that river is called the Lycus River that dumps into a river called the Meander. So this river flows and has carved this valley. This valley then sitting upon this are three specific cities. One city, of course, on one side two cities on the other side of the river. So let's do it this way for a moment to get a better understanding of what this is like. Landon and Toby, if the two of you would just simply move to, you, to your right, like just to, the, to get to the door, and move back just a little bit. Okay, here we are. Now I was going to go and get special like props for all of this, but with Thanksgiving, it just seemed like it would be, besides where in the world do you store that stuff when you're done in this house? So, uh, consider this. Three cities. One city sits on, so let's say the river runs right in between this pathway here out that door, which puts the two of you in one area, and that puts those of you on this couch in, this, in, this, in the other area. You are the area of Hierapolis. Hierapolis is the one city to the east of this river, actually kind of to the north, because they actually kind of run sort of, you know, sort of a northeast direction. So with that in mind, consider the fact that you guys are Hierapolis. In Hierapolis, there are hot springs. As there are hot springs, then, Hierapolis is known as the 
Spa town. You guys are the spa. So people will travel all over Turkey, all over Europe, and even from the Middle East to go to Hierapolis. And the purpose of going to Hierapolis is to bathe in the hot springs. So this is your area where you kind of get your nails done, you get all the, you get your hair done, and you get to sit in the stinky water all day for your skin. So that is the area of Hierapolis. Now don't forget that. Now, on the other side, about six miles to the other side of the river, is the area of the marketplace. Because you can't just go and get your nails done, you have to go shopping too. And so, the mall is the area we know as Laodicea. You might even think of it as Lame Mall Decia. That might help you a little bit. And so, the area where all of the market is, they, they were the ones who, by the way, sold things like medical um, things. For instance, they sold a particular salve that they had created or discovered that helped with a bacteria that was growing in the eyes that were making people blind. Um, so this particular salve was mixed with olive oil and rubbed on your eyes, and it actually provided a cure for something that made your eyes horribly swollen, horribly shut, and very, very dismal and dim in regards to its response to light. So they sold that. They also raised a, a sheep that raised a black wool, and this wool was so soft that you can actually make it and wear it with nothing underneath it. Even if you have the type like me that itches terribly when wearing wool, you could wear this thing, and they would wear it in the 40-degree weather, in the 90, 100-degree weather. They could still wear this black wool and still find themselves, and they were so proud of it. I mean, granted, because it was black, it would make you sweat, but because it was their gig, because it was their wool, everybody wore it because they were all cool about it. And so here were these people all steady, you know, swing. Swinky and steady, all stinky and sweaty, because they, at the mall you could buy the wool, you could buy the eye salve, and you could buy a lot. And, and as a result of that, Laodicea had become enormously wealthy, because obviously the people who went to the spa were usually dignitaries, they were regals, they were kings, and so they were guys with money. And so once they went to the spa, they wanted to go and pick up the latest things, and you had things exclusive to your area, so you could charge quite a high price for it. So you would become so wealthy that by 60 AD, when a massive earthquake levels the majority of the Lycus Valley, that Rome offers to help you rebuild all of your cities, and the most devastated was Laodicea. And yet, Laodicea chose to actually sponsor their own, um, their own rebuilding because they didn't want Rome to tell them what to do. Laodicea had gotten to the place in its simplest sense where they had comforted themselves to death. And when you and they had gotten so wealthy, they decided to try to take everything else upon them as well. As a matter of fact, well, if you have a spa and if you have a mall, what's the other thing you need to make the thing complete? You need a bank. You need an ATM. Because if you don't have an ATM, how in the world could you go to the spa or the mall in the first place? Colossae became the colossal savings and loan. That's sort of the idea there. So you would go to Colossae to get your money, so to speak, or to trade your money in regards to make it in the common currency. You would go there for the money. Then you would go to Laodicea for your stuff. And then you would go to Hierapolis for the spa. Does that make sense? Now, of those three, Colossae had been a big flourishing area, but 
There was a major road that at one time crossed right past the area of Colossae. That's what made it so popular. And it, was, it went over a thousand miles from the area of Ephesus, 112 miles in that direction, all the way beyond Israel to the area of the Euphrates River, which was another eight, 900 miles plus on the other direction. And it crossed that area until that earthquake hit. And there was actually an earthquake, and I think it was around 680, that actually made it worse, which that was the first of them. And they wound up rerouting the road, which made Colossae start to decrease in importance. Also, because Laodicea became more and more prominent, what happened is they decided they were going to try to do everything themselves. They were trying to, in essence, shoulder out the bank, shoulder out the spa. Now, how did they do that? Well, first of all, they started bringing the banks into Laodicea. So that you could, I mean, why wouldn't you want the ATM right next to or in the mall? That way you could trade your money and go shopping in the same place. Why would you want to travel that other 12 miles uh, down that way when you could actually do it all here? Does that make sense? But also with that, they thought, but why do we need people crossing the river then and going over to Hierapolis? So what they did is they started digging, digging these clay pots, um, these clay pipes, and they dug it underneath the river to go and to tap into the hot springs so they could tap into the hot springs so they could bring those hot springs over by pipe into the area of Laodicea. And if it had worked correctly, what you would have had was, you would have had Laodicea being the bank, the mall, and the spa in one place. But they had also used those same type of pipes to funnel in or to irrigate the water from the river, which was fresh water, into the area for people to drink. Now the problem is, when you take a hot sulfur spring and you run it underneath a river and then try to run it to your area, it becomes horribly tepid by the time it gets to you. It is no longer hot. But then you take those same pipes and you confuse which one of these pipes is the fresh drinking water and which one isn't. People would then take that water and if they were to drink of it, it was at that point just tap egg water, because it was sulfur water, that was lukewarm. So when people would take a sip of it, they would spit it out of their mouth and say, this is horrible. They expected something cold and fresh and refreshing, and instead what they got was drinking a rotten egg. Jesus will use all of those things in regards to Laodicea in his letter to Laodicea, if you think about it, because he'll talk about anoint yourself with ISAB, clothe yourself in white. You've already clothed in the black wool, but clothe yourself in white. And he says, and you guys are lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And everyone in Laodicea understood that idea because they knew what it was like to take a sip of that rotten egg water and think it was going to be something cold and refreshing. And that was what Jesus wanted of his church. He wanted his church to be something he could sip off of and be refreshed by instead of sipping something going, oh, this is terrible. And I would never want to be that kind of church where Jesus would want to sip on us and go, you guys smell like rotten eggs. You guys are terrible. You're rotten. I'm not going to sip off of this. Well, that was Laodicea. Hierapolis still would be, in essence, then, it would, though it would decrease, it would still become the spa place. But Colossae, by the time that Paul would write this, well, actually, is now in the middle of a great crisis. You see, Paul is in prison in about, well, from 60 to 62 A.D. And while he's in prison from 60 to 62 A.D., he is being visited right at the beginning of that prison time by this man named Epaphras. Now, if you notice the distance between Rome and this area, it's going to take this guy between four months and a year and a half to get to Rome. 
Now, what that means is, is that it all depends if he takes the land route or he takes the sea route. We don't know how he got there, but I am under the impression from the way that this is written that Paul is unaware of an earthquake that has devastated the area of Colossae in 60 AD, which means that Epaphras left Colossae unaware of the fact that en route... An earthquake would devastate. I mean, it isn't like he could turn on the news or get you know the update on his iPhone. There was an earthquake that devastated the area he came from while he's about to tell Paul about his mission to the area of Colossae. As a matter of fact, it tells us, look at chapter 2, verse 1 for a moment. Because first of all, we want to recognize Paul's relationship to this church in Colossae. It says, I want you to know the great conflict that I have for you and for those that are in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. What that tells me is Paul did not personally meet the people yet in Colossae. This was a church he hadn't met. Nor for the matter was the church in Colossae a church he had met yet. So the church that had started in Laodicea, the one that Jesus will rebuke, the one that is in, Laodicea, that is in Colossae, Paul had not met either of them. So how did these people get saved? Well, look at Colossians 1, verse 7. It says in 1, verse 7, it says, And you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister on your behalf. Now that tells me that this guy Epaphras had gone and preached the gospel to the people in Colossae, and maybe even likely in Laodicea, and people got saved. And they started just, this church was birthed, and as this church was birthed, Epaphras goes, I'll be back in a while, I'm going to go tell Paul. So this guy Epaphras leaves, and on his way to Paul, an earthquake devastates the area, which, by the way, will almost level Colossae, and it will never rise again to its former glory. And while that happens, he goes and tells Paul, there's this church that has gotten saved. People are getting saved. There's a group of people that have met there. And so Paul then responds by saying, well, I need to send him a letter. And so Paul now is writing a letter to the Colossians with the intent of making sure that they've got the right God. He's talking to Epaphras, and there's two things he learns, and it'll be our primary issue for this text. Now go to chapter 4, verse 7, because Elisa will give us a little background into how the letter gets there. In chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant of the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. And as well, Onesimus, a faithful, beloved brother, who is one of you, and they will make known to you all the things which are happening here. So Paul is in prison, in the Mamertine prison, not with Peter, according to text, but with at least we have no record of it, but Paul is in the Mamertine prison, and somewhere there he's allowed visitors. Epaphras comes to this stinky, dark, smelly prison and says, and what a gift for Paul to be in such a place and to hear the news that a church is erupting while Paul is in prison. No wonder why he could write to Timothy later on in his life in the same prison and say, but the gospel isn't chained. Even if I'm chained, the gospel isn't. Aren't you seeing how these people are out there preaching the gospel even when I'm not? And what a comfort that would be to me if I were Paul to know that this isn't resting on my shoulders. There are other people who are doing the work too. 
And so he takes Tychicus, who, by the way, will be someone he also sends to Ephesus with the, the letter to the Ephesians was sent by Paul, uh, by, by Paul through Tychicus to, of Ephesus. Paul in 2 Timothy will say, I've sent him back to Ephesus. So this is a guy that it looks like he actually is an errand runner for Paul, this Tychicus guy. As a matter of fact, when he speaks to Titus to the letter of Titus, he says, now I hope to send to you, and maybe it will be Tychicus. I mean, he's got a handful of people to use, and Tychicus is one of them. And 2 Timothy, when he writes to Timothy, he says, well, Tychicus, I've actually sent to Ephesus. And this particular character, along with Onesimus, are going to go and take this letter now from Paul's prison in, in, in Rome, all the way back to this area, to, into the Lycus Valley, which means when they arrive there, imagine their surprise. They're going to arrive and they're going to see ruins everywhere. People buried under pillars. Houses collapsed. I mean, it would be like running over and telling them that there's a brand new church that started in Haiti. And then coming back and finding the devastation we've seen there this last year. So Paul writes this letter. And as he writes this letter, he writes it to a group of people in intent of acquainting himself with them and making sure that they've got the right God. And it tells us in verses 1 and 2 and 3, Paul's basic... And again, remember, a letter always starts with the writer. Because you want to make sure that it's worth reading. I mean, so, you know, isn't this how we get our emails? We'll look at our emails and we'll look at... The first thing we'll look at, maybe we'll look at the subject out of curiosity, but we'll look at who wrote them. Because there's obviously a handful of them that you know are just going to be spam. It's like, look at I have no interest in that or that or this particular type of pill or this particular type of surgery or whatever. And the things that they send to people, and I, I don't need to buy a car, and I'm not actually you know, going to go broke on my mortgage. I'm not paying one. And so you cut off all of those spam. And then after that, you look at the names because you want to see which ones you're going to get to first. So, I mean, even today we do that. And in the same way, the letter starts with that. Now, I remind you, this thing is sort of written like a scroll, so when you crack open the scroll, the first thing you're going to see is the name. So it tells us, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. First of all, who wrote this? We have two people. Notice, not just one, but two people that are sending it. Paul and his apprentice, Timothy. Paul, we read, by the way, is an apostle, apostolos. Apo means out of, stalos means sent. In a simplest sense, it's an ambassador, a person that is sent out. He's sent out, he's an ambassador of Jesus Christ by the will, thelema, which means pleasure, by the pleasure of the Father. And I want you to recognize something about Paul that I think we all need to recognize. When you know what God has called you to, He's given you specific gifts, He's given you specific strengths, He's given you specific blessings. That may be uniquely yours. Even if he's given you a same gift that other people have, but the way you'll demonstrate it may be very different from the way another will. When he gives you that clear calling, and you are living in that calling, you need to recognize that you do it at the pleasure of the Father. Paul is clear on this mandate that even though at this particular moment Paul is in prison, and he'll tell us that he's in chains by the end of it, even though Paul is in prison, he can still experience the Father's pleasure because he knows he's still fulfilling his calling. Now, any one of us on a bad day stuck in a situation infinitely less than being in a dark, smelly, poop-ridden prison 
would find all kinds of reason to crawl into ourselves, complain, implode or explode or insulate or isolate or whatever, and have no interest in anything that does that has to do with ministry. We may even call it ministry, but it isn't. But in the end of it all, Paul is in the middle of a prison and he's writing letters that are going to make their way to the Bible. And that's a radical thought. Now, it isn't like Paul has lived a very Pollyannic, trouble-free life. Paul knows what it's like to be hated by people that call themselves the religious elite. He even knows what it's like to have people abandon him. He knows what it's like for people to say, you know what, I can't even hear you anymore. I am so sick of you. I'm so tired of you. You know, I, I, I have no respect for you. It's grown to this point. I'm, you're unimpressive to look at. You're unimpressive to listen to. And I, just, I can't bear to hear you anymore. That was the Corinthian church by the second letter to him. Notice, I mean, if you read that thing, it is stained with grief and tears. I mean, these were people that, he's, that he says, the more I love you, the less you love me back. He says, the more you hate me for it. And in essence, what they had done is they'd gone, you know what, they, somehow the enemy had gone in and said, look it, I have no interest in you. I mean, they've, they've just gotten to the point where, like, who do you think you are? Which is a classic approach of the enemy. Every pastor will deal with that, including Paul, the pastor here. I mean, Paul is a planter, he's a church planter, but he's also a pastor. And it's interesting because Paul hadn't planted this church, but he still seeks to be a pastor to them as much as he can be. Not exuding authority over them, but rather seeking to invest in them and being an example of the faith. And where better to do that than in prison, a place where other people would just complain and start to sing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Meanwhile, this guy is actually really them first. So with that, Paul says, look, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I know who I represent and I know to whose pleasure it is that I represent him. Now, what about you? Do you know what it's like to enjoy the Father's pleasure. Do you know what it's like? To, I mean, if you are here on faith, and every one of us here that I can see, in one way or another, is going to be called to ministry, to whatever degree, however, but whatever step of faith you take, beloved, listen, if you step out in your calling, it's at the pleasure of the Father. And if you are not experiencing the Lord's pleasure, the Father's pleasure, either you're not grabbing the truth of it or you're not walking in your calling. Paul could so experience the Father's pleasure that he could take this delight and experience this joy even while in prison. His relationship with the Philippian church was one, it was a very feminine church. It was very strong female characters and very strong in regards to the proportion of women in the church. It started with primarily with women. And the letter is the most feminine, is the most emotional in regards to that. And it is one where Paul's like, I mean, nowhere does he say per capita more, rejoice, take joy, rejoice. I'm going to say it again, rejoice. Because these were people who were freaking out because Paul was in prison. Imagine you're in prison, you, you have no vision of light. I mean, other than whatever candle you're going to be able to do to write something like this or dictate it to someone else who can see it, he may have to dictate it through a hole so a guy up there has to write it down. I mean, in any of the cases, imagine this is the guy that goes, Cheer up! Now, if, you were, if it was one of us, we might say, Cheer up, you're not the one in the prison, get over it! Instead, Paul goes, Look at it! I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And to write that in a prison? That's amazing. And to say to live is Christ and to die is gain? No wonder why you would say, you know what? To die right now sounds like a really good idea. I'm really torn. Dying sounds great. However, the Lord's made clear to me that this isn't my time yet. And one of those reasons is because of you. 
Because there's still more that he wants me to do to affect you. What a radical thing to say. What a radical relationship. To the Ephesians, it's primarily intellectual and he, and he just nails them at their own culture. To the Colossians, this guy is basically giving us things we can bank on. And that makes sense to me since that's the type of church it is. Or I'm saying that's the type of culture it is. So Paul simply says, I'm an apostle. I'm just someone that is sent out. But I'm sent out to represent Jesus. Now listen, beloved, you are not sent out to represent Italy or America or California or what it means to come from whatever your background is. The only thing you're called to represent is Jesus. And to be honest, praise God, because everything else is flawed. If you want to represent the church and people have a beef with it, they have a right to. But here's the good news. Everything, everything in life, all the information will testify of one or both of these things. Either God is good and man is not. How do you explain the Holocaust? Man is not. How could God turn that horrible thing into a place where the nation Israel was born? Because God is good. How come the church is riddled with problems and failures? Because man's not good. Not in, well, what happens when they get saved? He's still an ungood guy that got saved by God. He's a construction site. And there are hints of glory, and there are hints of man in it. When God is in control, you see the good. When man's in control, it gets really ugly. Of course that's the case. But beloved, I am called to represent Jesus, and you're called to represent Jesus. And when we're out there, they can know a lot about us and go to hell. But there's only one name on heaven and earth by which all men must be saved. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Now this tells me that the recipients, now on verse 2, are saved. They're believers. It's important to note, especially, God bless you, coming from uh, Rome as of recent, where a saint is something that has to be voted on and you have to do a couple of miracles and a handful of other things before you get the gold dish over your head. Uh, according to Scripture, all a saint is is a person that is set apart unto the Lord. That's it. The moment you said yes to Jesus' gift on the cross, you became a saint. So, Saint Landon. You know, that's the way that works. Saint David. Saint Trista. Saint Morgan. You know, this is fun. Saint Stefan. No, you've got one of the better names. Even you get crown in your name. How cool is that? Saint Marco. Good Italian name. I mean, think about how this works. I mean, and the cool part is it isn't like, notice it isn't just written to the leadership. Notice it isn't written to a handful of leaders. It's written to every person who goes to the church there. That is saved. He's not writing to unbelievers. The Gospels are for unbelievers. You want to get that person to know Jesus. You don't just simply lay out the laws and constituencies of what happens once you're saved. This is the kind of life you should live. You get them to know the reason why you want to live that life. And you get them to the cross first. I mean, you, otherwise, you put the burden on them that they can't possibly carry. That's Christ's burden to carry in the first place. But to the saints and faithful brothers, faithful in Christ. Not faithful in the world, not faithful because they go to the church, but faithful in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're always in that order and it's Paul's sort of namesake. Grace means you get what you don't deserve and peace, remember, doesn't mean a great cosmic emptiness of, of tumult. 
It simply means to be unified. Eras. And the word eras means two things that were formerly at enmity or enemies of each other have now become one, reconciled. And the only way you'll ever be reconciled is through grace. You can't get peace without grace. And grace must come first. Because otherwise, the other opposite of grace is justice. And justice is what we deserve. But grace is what we are offered. And you have the choice. You can choose justice and go to hell. Or you can accept the gift of grace. And as a result of that, receive peace with God. And if you're fighting Him, and you're running from them, then you don't have peace from peace with them right now. But the good news is, grace is what's offered you to be reconciled. And that, of course, is the gift of Jesus at the cross. Paul wants to make sure we get there even before he starts. Now we start with the beginning of his letter in verse 3. Now that we've said, basically, verses 1 and 2 are basically, Hi, this is Paul. Hey, you're the saints in, in Colossae. Uh, hi. Verse 3. We give thanks to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Now, beloved, this is where it becomes, well, this is where it strikes the heart, to be honest. And the reason that it strikes the heart is how consistent this message is. Now, listen, because as I read this as a pastor, one of the first things I think is, could Paul receive such a letter, could I run to a guy in prison if this were 2,000 years ago and tell them about this fellowship? What would Paul say? I say I have a collection of believers there. See, the interesting thing is, notice Paul didn't say just since we heard of your faith. As if Paul asked another question in it. How is it demonstrated? It's one thing for it to say, we have a church full of people. And this church full of people that we have, well, um, they're excited. They're excited about the Lord. They sing songs loudly. Man, you should see how many people come to the church. You should see the worship team. Wow. And the technology. I mean, the PowerPoint presentations we do and the dancers and Landon is, uh, Landon's interpretive dance. It's amazing. Um, you know, you should, you should hear the soloists. When we've got this band, and boy, can that preacher preach, man. He could talk for days. You know, and he's got his points, and he's a laser pointer, and then we do this laser show, and we sing songs for like an hour, and it's the best concert we've ever been to. Wow! And Paul stops, and you could just see him stopping me if I were to tell him this. And he'd go, but how's their faith demonstrated? Well, we've got this great worship team. Yeah, yeah, but how's their faith demonstrated? But all these people are coming. But how is their faith demonstrated? Well, we've got a really good mature board. And man, we've got the building. And we've got the finances. He goes, well, how is their faith demonstrated? Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, it says for this, circumcision or non-circumcision doesn't mean anything, but faith working itself through love. To the Ephesians, therefore, since I've ever heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. But now Timothy has come to us and brought us good news about your faith and love. 
Second Thessalonians 1, 3. We are bound to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because of your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you abounds towards each other. First Timothy 1, 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love. From a pure heart, from a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Titus 3.15 For all those who greet you, greet those who love us in the faith. Philemon, verse 5 Hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. You see, throughout Scripture, Paul as a church planner looks at these people. He's not, he doesn't know the church. And this man of Paphos has come up. He said, hey, um, there's a brand new church that's just erupted. Oh, well, tell me about it, Paphos. Well, they're responding to the gospel. Well, how are they responding to the gospel? Man, they're raising their hands. They are praying. They're doing the sinner's prayer, man. We've done the four spiritual steps with them, a war over the laws for them, you know, and all that. We've done the way of the master. And boy, by the time we're done, they're down on their knees and they're confessing their sins and they're praying. And Paul goes, then what? And you're like, what do you mean, then what? They're saved. Paul goes, well, what are they seeing? Well, what do you mean, what are you seeing? With every one of the churches, except for one, he seems to say this, well, the only church where Paul doesn't even say that he's thankful for is the Galatian church. And he's not even sure they're saved. He says, what led you astray from the gospel? You've traded in Christ for this other doctrine. Can I say that? Now, it doesn't say, in every one of those cases, not once does it say love for the lost. I find that interesting. It says love for the saved. For the saint, for your brothers. It's easy to forget that. Because there's all kinds of reasons to not love. I mean, or better yet, the way that the enemy gets his biggest victory in this is just simply convincing you that you're loving when you're not because you redefine what love is. Oh, that works for anyone. Of course I'm loving, but you're not loving. I'm not loving unless I'm doing it biblically. I've got to tell you, that's painful. That's a painful text to read. In Matthew chapter 25, after Jesus speaks of the end times, and he talks about separating the sheep and the goat. Remember that? He tells those that have done right, go to the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. God prepared this place for them, for us. Before the world was ever established, before the world was ever made, he prepared that. He never says that about hell. He doesn't say, go to the place prepared for you before the, king, before the foundations of the world. It was just a place that was prepared. It says it was a place prepared for the devil and his angels. It was, hell is not made for human beings. Now, people will go there on their own choice, but hell was not made for them. But he says, assuredly, I say to you, and as much, this is verse 40, and as much as you did it to the least of these, my brothers... Not the rest of the world. Jesus, not called, Jesus does not call the unsaved his brothers. He does not say that every human being is of the family of God. As a matter of fact, all the way back in Genesis, there are people who follow the commandments of the Lord or follow his will, seek the Lord, that are called children of God. And there are those who have no interest in it, like those that followed under Cain, who they'll call the sons of men. That's a radical difference. There's always been a delineation. And it isn't like we're all children of God. No, we're not. The people that are children of God are adopted. 
when Jesus looks and he took, took a look at these people, he says, whatever you did then, to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Well, what was it that they did? Well, um, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was homeless and you took me in. I, I was sick and you visited me and I was in jail and you came to me. Those five things, that's it. Food and drink. You opened your home and you came to me when I couldn't come to you. And then he took a look at this other group of people who, by the way, were convinced they were just as saved, just as convinced as we are. They were just as convinced. They would have argued their salvation doctrinally, theologically. They would have stood on it with just as much as vehemence as us because you could tell they were shocked. And Jesus looks at those people and says, now go to hell. What a horrible thing to be that sure and then to walk into hell. And they're like, well, well what? What happened? And Jesus is like, look it, you were all talk. But it didn't bear on your life. And I'm like, wait a minute. And what about me? Because I know that a church is going to reflect its pastor in time. Is there love? And genuine care for the brothers and sisters? And we all know this. If you don't show it right, it's always going to be mistaken. You know, people have, some people don't even have categories for kindness. Hey, but I'd like to toss out something just for you to consider. And this isn't a heavy trip. It's just saying, Lord, would you steer us this way? Would you steer us as a fellowship this way? Would you steer me as a Christian this way? Turn to Philippians chapter 2, would you please? And I kind of figured we'd only get to verse 8 today. So, I just would like to point out four very clear things about what love looks like. I mean, of course, we could go to a text like 1 Corinthians and spend the next six hours on it, which I would love, and by the way, which I plan on doing myself, um, because this is too serious for me. I mean, I don't think any of us even think about hell anymore. Um, we just kind of feel like we've got our fire insurance and we're good. But man, I don't want anything to look like hell. In chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be considered equal with God. Okay, that's where Jesus starts. Where Jesus starts is by simply saying that, obviously, for him to be equal with the Father, that wasn't a problem. That was who he is. Okay, so it isn't like, by the way, that Jesus had less to, to surrender than we did. The bottom line is there's nothing that we could possibly give up that was more than what Jesus did to do this. So this is where Jesus started, equal with the Father, which, by the way, will never start that way. But then it tells us this. It says, But he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him then and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow for those that are in heaven, those that are on earth and those that are under the earth and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, go back to verse 7 for a moment. At verse 7 we see now what Jesus did, what love does. And it's four things. In verse 4 it says, but he made himself of no reputation. So the first thing is that love sacrifices. In real love sacrifices. Love is not keeping score. That's not going, well, you know, I did this twice, you did this no times. 
Well, you know, I mean, come on, do I really have to lower myself this much? Yes, you do. If we're going to look like Jesus, and Jesus is our example, love sacrifices. Love sacrifices when, and by the way, the opposite of that is entitlement. When we just feel like I'm entitled to just be an ag, I'm entitled to be a grump, I'm entitled to just kick back and let everyone else do whatever. Look at Jesus made himself of no reputation when he had all the glory. Being equal with the Father, he stepped down from all of that so that he could be made fun of, mocked, and spat upon by the people he created. And I think, how much can I sacrifice that could possibly compare to that? But then it says, in taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, then the second thing is, is that love serves. Love genuinely serves. It doesn't serve with scorekeeping. It serves in joy. We never read anywhere that Jesus said, do you know how many times I've done this and you guys haven't done it at all yet? And even we see Paul do things like this. I mean, Paul is shipwrecked on Malta. They've all, they haven't eaten for 14 days. They try to eat a little bit. They've been tossed. Everyone's been barfing their guts out. And then Paul gets to the land. Everyone's just kissing the ground, thankful to be alive. And Paul's grabbing sticks so they can make a fire for people. Neither Paul was a spaz, which appears not to be the case according to 2 Corinthians. They say he's not really much to look at, and his speech amounts to nothing. I tend to think that isn't a guy that's a spaz. This is a guy that just simply puts others first. But Jesus took on the form of a bondservant. Jesus could have taken on the form of a king and died. He could have taken a quick assassination, but instead he took on the form of a bondservant. I mean, and so here I am, am I ashamed to be such a person because the world would make fun of me? And saying, being found as the appearance of a man, he humbled himself. The third thing is that love submits. And all that means is to choose your rank yourself under someone else. Every fight that you find between you and someone else, every great argument will be a lack of submission between someone and someone else. Often we die on hills we just don't need to. There's a difference when you're like you're standing on something. You're like, look at this is who Jesus really is, and this is what you say he is. Hey, die on that hill. But when it's what well, you did, or you said, she said, that kind of thing, man, just stop it. Stop, stop putting ourselves over someone like that. There's no place for competition in the body of Christ. Praise God, my left hand isn't competing with my right. How about you? Praise God that I don't have one kidney competing with the other, or one lung competing with the other. Well, one part of my digestive system that wants to be bigger than the other one because it's tired of feeling like it's smaller. But it is amazing how you can compete in any area. I mean, I've watched people compete. Praise God, this isn't any of us. But I've watched people compete over things like knitting you know, or competing over cleaning or competing over... I mean, it is amazing what you can compete over. Which, by the way, the Bible tells us in Galatians is a manifestation of the flesh. It's called contentions. And all contentions is, is a competitive spirit. Now, I'm not talking about you can't go out there and play basketball and try to score more. You can't pick up the Wii and not try to win. I'm telling you that you know the difference. If it, if it winds up dividing you from the person you're with and makes them an enemy, don't do it. Having taught at two different Christian secondary schools, I know what it's like to watch a Christian school hate another Christian school because they were their arch rival. And what's really funny is that the two schools that hated each other the most were the two schools I taught at simultaneously. And I put together a choir from both schools. And that was, and I thought it was the most fun thing because these people would have killed each other when they started. And they were a fantastic choir at the end. And part of it was, we, we just lived by Psalm 133 where it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brothers to dwell together in unity. 
then when they got back out there in sports, what was amazing is they both played a better game because they were too busy actually enjoying themselves instead of just trying to beat the other team. What a good thing that was. So, it sacrifices, it serves, it submits, and then the hardest perhaps of all of them, it became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It surrenders. It surrenders the rights, it surrenders the... Whatever. And you know what? The enemy knows how to make you talk about somebody else when they're not around um, because your heart's overwhelmed. The enemy knows how to make you isolate. The enemy knows how to make you fester. The enemy knows how to make you hold a grudge. The enemy knows how to make you... And, and all of that, you still think, that's just logical, that's just reasonable. That's what we do to survive. But when was the last time we took those things and just surrendered them? How dare they? Don't they know who I am? How dare they do that to me? Hey, look, there's no room for scorekeeping in the body of Christ. Unless what you're keeping score of is how good someone else has been so you can actually applaud them for it. There's not enough of that because you'll keep score on one side or the other. So keep the right score. To pull someone aside and say, you know, I've noticed you've done this an awful lot. Thank you. That's a really cool thing. But it's easier, isn't it, to just to keep score of the other? And it says, therefore... Because Jesus sacrificed, because he served, because he submitted, because he surrendered, therefore God gave him superiority. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and those below the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's go back to our text and start wrapping this around. We also read another impetus for loving, and we read it in our text in Colossians chapter 1. It says this. Again, for context, verse 3. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, which you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. There is a hope. And this hope calls me to love. Because of this hope, I see your faith. And I see it lived out in love. Do you know why I could surrender? Do you know why I could submit? Do you know why I could sacrifice? Do you know why you can too? Because we have hope. The word hope is used three times in in this particular book, by the way. We see it once here, once in verse 23 and once in verse 27, all in chapter 1. Look at verse 23 with me. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Verse 27. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery of the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Get this, we have a hope past, we have a hope present, and we have a hope future. The hope past is the hope of the, of the gospel, which tells me that I've been saved at the cross accepting his gift. I've been saved from the penalty of sin. The hope present is the hope of the gospel that says I am being saved from the power of sin. Though I've been saved from its penalty at the cross, by the Holy Spirit I'm being saved of sin's power every day that I walk with Him and I become more like Him. 
But the hope of glory is the hope of the future, which tells me that I will be saved from the very presence of sin when I stand before God, and sin will not even exist. No wonder why it says in Isaiah 63 that He will remove from us even our memory, that we will have even no recollection anymore of the fact that sin existed, because it would still exist in our minds if we remembered it. When we stand before God, there is going to be no even remembrance of the sin that we've done. Glory to God for that. Because I would sure hate to live the eternity in heaven remembering the awful sin that I lived out on earth. And he says, that hope drives us to love. Because I'll want to be selfless. In the simplest sense, love is just you before me. That's the simplest living of it. If somebody were to come here, if Paul were to show up at this church, even this morning, would Paul see people that put others before themselves? Would they see us put him, even if we didn't know it was Paul? Would they see us put him before us? Would those who visit see that we put them before us? Well, because that's what Paul says. He goes, look at I um, I've never been there. But I'll tell you what I do hear about you guys. Oh, what I love for God to be able to say that about us. Except for the part that I've never been there. I'd really pray that he would be able to say he's, he is here, of which we know. But to say, but man, I tell you, the news is getting out about you guys. And you know what? It is. When I hear people talking that work at the tea house, and I hear their conversations, those conversations aren't about how quick we are to argue over doctrine. They, matter of fact, I'm not even sure they know where we stand on every issue. They probably don't. Because people just assume if you're that kind, then you must be liberal. We actually get to represent a very rare group of people that actually believe the Bible and actually seek to live it out. It's a very rare group of people. But they do see that we care. But they see that we care for them and they're not saved. Clearly the gal that was here last night, she was about to cry because of how the love sheets are demonstrated. When we were at Broccoli, at that, um, at that place, and what I love about that is that was our brothers sat next to this guy next to me who was just in tears, and he said, I have not felt this kind of love as long as I can remember. And what's amazing, he goes, and I, he goes I could feel it coming out of my face, is what he said, in a very Caribbean dialect. And it was a really cool thing to see. And to see guys that had gotten saved that were there, listening intently that we used to not listen at all. They know love. I think it's really radical that today someone came to and just said, I'd really like to go and deliver some food to the sick that, have, that should be here but can't be here um, from Thanksgiving. And I, to be honest, think it's a... I mean, how do we say that's a bad idea in light of this? My first thought is, well, there's two families that I can think of that are sick. How do we get it to both? You know, how do we find it where they are and make it our mission? But I mean, I, I want to be inspired, but I don't want it to be just something that we can do for this day and then forget about tomorrow. And this has to be our, our operation. This has to be the way that we function. But beloved, look at they're not going to see how you love them if they don't see how we love each other. Does that make sense? I remember a long time ago, before Shantae was born, me seeing another father and him telling me, Mike, who had a daughter. My daughter will never see how I love her until she, because she can't watch that from a distance. 
She'll never understand that unless she gets to watch how I love her mom. Because the way that she sees I love her mom is the way she'll assume I love her. And you know what? I think that that's a pretty easily transferable quality. People that aren't saved are going to watch how we treat each other. And let's be honest, if we're all snippy and nasty and whatever with each other or whatever, and isolating and angry or whatever whatever it is, and I'm not saying that as a rebuke because I don't think that that's our case, but if the enemy were to get in and do that, who would want to be a part of that? And there has to be a place where people know I can be in here and be human and be loved. And if I respond to the gospel, I'll feel all the more so. Okay, verses 6 to 8, let's close this up. This gospel, remember this hope that you've heard before, the word of truth in the gospel, which has come to you and is also in all the world bringing forth fruit. It is also among you from the day that you heard of it, the grace of God and truth. My first thought as I read this is there, are no, there were no tellies, there were no mobiles, no bios. There were no daily posts, no newspapers, no satellites, no cars, no trains, no planes. And the whole world had heard the gospel. We have one of the fanciest, oldest, and most uh, sophisticated or consistent, somewhat, except for the strikes, public transit system in the entire world in this, in this particular city. Then I would not hesitate to say that more than 50%, if not more, much more, have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ at all in this particular city. There are 12 million people here. But they could certainly tell you who won X Factor. They can certainly tell you who's possibly going out with who and who's digging who's chili, but they couldn't possibly tell you about how a God that loves them. And I, and I, I got to tell you, in my own heart, I hear shame on me. Shame on me because somehow it's supposed to be someone else's job and not mine. And here, Paul's like, Paul's preaching the gospel from the prison, and then it's reaching over you know, nearly a thousand miles, or you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to this place. And Paul was in a prison to get there. And there was no phone to call. There was no newspaper to be interviewed and to get it on. There was no television to watch. And, I mean, which one of us would, would to be honest, it's one thing to be Paul, which just basically speaks of an amazing integrity of character. But which one of us would be Tychicus? I mean, imagine being a guy that just loves the flock so much, or a Paphras, that would travel hundreds of miles to go from Paul's side to travel through all of that land. I mean, this is no GPS. There's no car. At best, you're riding an animal. You ever do that for more than 20 minutes and see how you feel? Imagine traveling that for hundreds of miles just so you could deliver a letter to a group of people to make the churches established. Which one of us is that faithful of a friend? I mean, what's inconvenient for us? To travel to South London? I mean, I think about that when I think about what it's like to go to a study and I think it's going to be freezing in the next couple months, for the next five months or whatever. I want to make sure, I know this is one we'll get to display to those people down in South London at that rehab place that we really care. When it's freezing and they don't even want to go out to smoke and we're going to go into bringing the gospel, they're going to know how much we care. And even then, we're in a train for the majority of the time, underground warm. And yet they'll think that that's a great sacrifice. I mean, what if I were to walk that? Because I guarantee you that Tychicus had to walk farther than that in, in weather that's just as, as unfriendly. And at least we won't be blasted over by a, a sandstorm. That would be a little odd here. Verse 7, you learn it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant and faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who has declared to us, and notice what it says again, your love in the Spirit. This letter started and ended in regards to at least this section 
started and ended with the idea that I heard about you guys loving. And he declared to me this love. Epaphras, what Epaphras told me about was more than just how you could actually walk people through your laws of eschatology. And, you know, how Jesus pertains to several biblical prophecies from the Old Testament. Or how, you know, that you've memorized all 66 books in their order. He says, you know what the guy told me about is that this is a church that really is others first. They love each other. And you can see Paul tickled by that. Next week, or the week after, whenever we have the next um, Sunday morning, we'll see Paul's prayer, verses 9 to 12. What a pastor would pray for this church. And I'm really thankful that we didn't teach it today because I want to be able to have more time to make sure that, that this is the type of prayer I pray for you. But I think we have a lot on our plates just to consider what we have here. There's been a feast. We've got Secundi, as he reminds us of this one more time. And I just ask again, even if this isn't where you're at, do you want it to be? I mean, if the Lord lays it out like this and says, look, this is what I want for my church. Is this what? It is, by the way, the very fruit of God's Holy Spirit, is it not? To love. Well, then I think we know where we're going to find it. Faith is trust enough to allow him to influence us and to pour into us what he desires. That hope gets us excited about what he's going to do, so we expect. Literally means to anticipate with pleasure. I just want to pray for us. I want to pray for us as a church that we would truly ask the Lord to make us people who love. A church that loves each other. And in that, we become like a sponge, sucking in other things. I pray that they would, I mean, why do, I mean, why do bars advertise? They want to suck in people. This is the happening place. Lord God, I want to thank you for the simple message you've given us in these eight verses. And I recognize love, Lord, is a lot more than just giving a blanket to a cold person. Giving food to a hungry person. Love tells the truth. Love believes all things and hopes all things. It doesn't keep score. It keeps no record of wrongs. It's patient and kind and not boastful and doesn't envy because it puts others first. It's surrendered. It's sacrificial. It serves. It submits. And I want to pray, Lord, and I know that you have given us the grace, Lord, in a weird way for so many people to be sick and don't even know how to drive their car or whatever it is, Lord. That you've given us, Lord, in this intimacy to be able to turn to your word and to seek to be affected by it. A message for us, Lord, as there were 120 praying in an upper room before you even brought 3,000 saved in a day. But I think, what would it be like if those 120 weren't ready when the 3,000 got saved? And I know you've got floodgates of blessings. 
of people that we're going to see lives changed. Oh God, please, today, turn us into lovers when we put others first. When we back out of any form of cul-de-sac of entitlement. When we get back on the highway of, of selflessness where we belong. And we seek to listen and understand. That we don't treat each other as agendas, as tasks. But Lord, we recognize we can't do this in our flesh. So first we pray for that fresh filling of your Holy Spirit to accomplish what we cannot humanly do. But also, Lord, we know that there is a hope laid up for us in heaven. A hope of glory. There is that hope of the gospel, Lord, that we have gravitated to, we have embraced. And now, Lord, we pray that you would make us people who may be the most bizarre people that anyone's ever seen because of our behavior to each other. And Lord, I, 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 t- I know that I'm humbled as I think of the honor that is displayed in some of the Eastern countries uh, and just the honor towards the older and, and respect that is paid for each other. And how humbled I am by the Italian culture and just how warm and embracing the family culture is with the hugs and the kisses and the and the bright eyes and the listening with smiles and God, I want to be able to draw from these things and I really just want people to see this as a family. But you can, I know we can't squirt that out or force it or cut it into that. But we can surrender ourselves to your grindstone and allow you to carve us into what you desire. So God, I pray you would do that for each of us, please. We again openly confess, Lord, that as sinners, you've died for us the cross, Jesus, paying for our sin and rose again and offer us that new life. We accept that new life and we confess you as our Savior and our Redeemer and our Lord, but we recognize in your resurrection you offer us a new life, a life of love. We're no longer in bondage to our sin, but now we are free as you tell us that instead, not using our freedom as an opportunity for vice, but rather through love, we are to serve one another. We are free to serve, free to love. So make us such people, I pray. And I pray, Lord, you would drive us all at one point or another this week, Lord, to First Corinthians 13, and just allow you to inculcate those very things in us, that this is that, that could be, reading that, that that would be the clearest description of any of us. And so Lord, we, um, we lift that up to you and we just pray today that you would manifest yourself this way in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of um, being in the Word together. Thank you for allowing that. Uh, read ahead, 9 through 12, and let the Lord speak to you in that. Make that your prayer.